Welcome to Realising Your Potential, a leadership podcast from Accolade Wines. Accolade Wines is a leading global wine company with famous wine brands loved and trusted around the world, including Hardy's, St. Hallet, Grand Berge, Banrock Station, House of Arras and Echo Falls. The show was originally recorded for our people as a learning and development tool, but due to popular demand, it is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. If you would like to contribute, ask questions, or just share some comments, please get in touch with Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Ange Murphy, Chief People and Communications Officer. In this second series, I speak to some fantastic guests from our external networks who share their personal journeys, leadership tips and advice as we continue to build our high-performance culture. In this episode, I speak with keynote speaker, facilitator, author and leadership advisor, Dr Jason Fox. Dr. Fox describes himself as a meta-modern wizard on a quest to co-create a world more curious and kind. He believes that many organisations are suffering from the curse of efficiency, where they have become too busy for progress and lose the ability to empathise with the work that really matters. When not liberating the world from the delusion of progress, Jason enjoys partaking in extreme sports, such as reading, sun avoidance and coffee snobbery. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Fox, and I hope you do too. So let's get started. Dr. Jason Fox, welcome to Accolade Wines podcast series. It's an absolute delight to have you here today, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you. Me too. So so happy to be here with you. Firstly, and I always think it's important that we kick off with each of the guests that I have telling us a little bit about themselves, their career, and um, the work that you've been doing well, I've, I've taken to calling myself a wizard for the past, uh, I guess, six or seven years, mostly because um, I don't really feel comfortable with, with the term thought leader. My background is in, uh, I did a PhD in motivation and behavior change, uh, and then I found myself, um, I guess, uh, helping organizations use some of the science of motivation to good effect. And I, well, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe. I, I guess mostly these days, I, I, after writing a couple of best-selling books and um, somehow working with senior leaders in um, organisations throughout the world, I, I generally tend to find myself working with uh, leadership teams that are doing unprecedented work. So, leaders that are trying to navigate complexity, ambiguity, paradox, doubt, new frontiers. This is the domain that I, I tend to find myself uh, helping folks with these days. Well, I'm curious because I know that one of the books that you wrote was called Game Changer. It was an analogy between computer games and translating that into our, our everyday lives or work. It was looking at the parallels between uh, game design and motivation science. And it came out at a time right before gamification became a big buzzword. and that there's immense power in that, that, uh, that managers and leaders can realize. So it's, it's, uh, the book came out at a good time, but then the industry kind of got a little bit swept up and carried away with superficial um, game mechanics on top of work and kind of missed the more meaningful, uh, nuanced and complex approach that uh, anyone who's been in business and management for a while will know that people are complex. So, so yes, in a nutshell, yes, it looked at the the um, parallels between game design and motivation science uh, and translated that in the way that people can use it to influence and shape and shift motivation behavior. After realizing many leadership teams were seeking quick fixes and familiar solutions and default ways of doing things, I 
I spent some time a few years writing a book called How to Lead a Quest, which is my mm. latest book, uh, which is all about, um, I, I guess, uh, meaningful th progress beyond the default. With Game Changer, were you just like a gamer who wanted to like game all the time and get some interest out of it? Or was it just uh, more more clever than that? It's it's really interesting that you make the like because games if we were to surface this up beyond video games, and yet there was, whilst I was doing my PhD in motivation and behavior change, I did find myself playing a World of Warcraft, which is a particular video game, and it took over my life for about three months. And it was only when I was moving house that I realized, oh, well, something was going on here. Somehow the game design was more effective at um, uh, engaging my behavior and motivation than most of the gold standard uh, motivational strategies. So that's that's kind of what started my interest. But um, th there's a common thing amongst, uh, be it sport, be it video games, be it board games, that the concept of a game is a goal-driven, challenge-intense and feedback-rich experience geared mm -hmm. towards progress. And most games have these kind of containers, like you, you step onto a playing field, you know that there are different rules at play, and the parameters are, are kind of defined. And so therefore it's possible within the workplace to also create that dynamic as well, the, the kind of to use game design for good effect. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we totally see this in sports. Um, and, and also there are some contexts where it doesn't really make so much sense. And part of the savvy, part of the skill is being savvy to know when does it, when does it make sense for us to kind of flex into game design or to kind of make the, the sporting elements of things, uh, you know, when we can try to dial that up and when, when, when is it maybe not so appropriate? When I first met you and you did some work with us, you introduced the concept to me around a meaningful sense of progress. Can we explore that concept a little bit with you? Because there's some things I learned with you that I still apply today to my work life. I'd really love to explore that concept with you. There's a world of motivation when you when you hear the word motivation a lot of people think of the i guess the the person who's climbed the mountain or the the kind of motivational speaker that rocks up with the you know posing in front of their ferrari or, or whatever it is and there's a there's a whole world of hype there but there's also some incredibly powerful stuff that that works and can be incredibly transformational so if we think of motivation you can think of it almost in three categories there's internal motivation which is working on attitudes, beliefs, your internal narratives, your scripts, the, the kind of, I mean, there's a whole rich world there. And particularly as we're getting more savvy with identifying traumas that have shaped how we grow and develop as adults and uh, how we, um, all sorts of therapies, like it's, it's, it's an incredibly rich world and it works supremely well one-on-one. -on -one. The trouble is though, that this stuff doesn't really scale that well. And so what can work in a, in a coaching dynamic where you have a professional or, or a therapist or a, you know, a business coach who actually understands and listens and knows you well and knows your context well. I mean, that stuff that, that's, that can be life-changing, mm -hmm. but that's, just because it works one-on-one -on -one doesn't mean it will scale one-to-many. And this is where we end up with the classic, you know, cliche motivational lines that get turned into posters that look cute, but don't really translate into, I guess, a meaningful kind of progress in real life. And so what often happens in a business context is we'll jump to extrinsic motivators, which are your incentives and rewards. And 
most of the business world, I would suggest runs on these, um, I guess, incentivized goals and targets. And the thing is, these work, um, they work really well, and they work particularly well for formulaic tasks with predictable outcomes. So this is where, you know, this is this is interesting, because this is where some of the dynamics of sport come into play, but not all, critically, it's not all, but some of it do. So uh, if you were to hear from an Olympian um, talking about how, you know, they, they, they had a, a goal in mind, they focused with a fairly exact detail, really specific on the time that they're looking to beat, and they had a rhythm or a routine of how they show up and do it, that, that makes complete sense, because the Olympic Games are they have all sorts of committees to ensure that the context is kept very stable. Um, same with uh, most sporting contexts, you have referees and umpires to ensure that the rules are enforced and the context remains stable. So if you're playing a game of basketball, you can go to a different country and the rules are almost identically the same. That doesn't necessarily translate in the business context, though, because most of the landscape that we find ourselves in as leaders and managers is I would suggest complex, ambiguous, volatile, dynamic, non-linear, doubt-ridden, paradoxical. It's, there's all sorts of things. Sometimes we can be lucky to find ourselves in a in a place of stability, but if anything, the last year has taught us that um, the world is a dynamic, interconnected, and changing place. And so, therefore, sometimes goals work, but sometimes they don't. And and I would suggest that we need a third approach to motivation that is not the internal approach of attitudes and beliefs and just uh, driving uh, success from within, because that's a great way to burn out talented people. Um, and we also do, we can't simply rely on incentives and rewards because it almost imagines that we know what the future looks like and we have a stable context that we're working within. Of course, they, we need them about 80% of the time, but not, not the 99% of the time that we often see. And the third thing is, well, it's really interesting. Um, a couple of researchers asked over 600 managers from different industries and different organizations, what is it that gets people most enthusiastic to do great work? Great work being work that goes above and beyond the default, that involves discretionary effort, curiosity, empathy, and, and all of that. And that they were given a bunch of good answers to choose from, distilled down from various meta-analyses. So uh, incentives and rewards, clear goals and targets, interpersonal support, recognition for good work or a clear sense of progress. And the number one thing the managers came up with was recognition for good work, which is a really lovely answer. What the researchers thought might be interesting is why don't we ask the employees themselves or better yet, let's follow a bunch of employees over several years, analyzing over 12,000 journal entries to see what correlates to the highest levels of motivation to do great work. And it turns out what came out as number one is what the managers ranked as dead last. And that is a clear sense of progress. Mm. clear sense of progress and this became the number one breakthrough idea from the harvard business review in 2010 and a decade later it's yet to overtly permeate into leadership folklore but if you look beneath the scenes if you look behind what drives agile what drives just good common sense you'll see that this clear sense of progress permeates throughout it all it's about reducing the latency between effort and meaningful feedback and again if we come back to your um, sporting analogies any good coach or any good um, sport, you know, sport has these feedback loops built into it. Mm. You know, you, you you immediately know if you're on track or not. Mm. Um, if your performance is, is, if it's working, if it's congruent, if, if it makes sense, you, you know. But a lot of work that we do, sometimes people work on things, you know, it, it can be very common for 
I mean, an exa a real example that I've heard and I tend to use a bit now is a, a manager uh, tells someone on the team, oh, look, I need you to get this report to me by Monday morning. I've got some people coming from overseas. This is really important. And this person's really busy. And so, but they say, of course, you say yeah, yes, because you're terrible at saying no. So you stay back late and you work really hard in this report and you already have heaps of other priorities and you stay back on the weekend a little bit. You do extra work, you proofread it. You're kind of proud of this report. You've put a lot of effort into it. And then Monday uh, comes, you hear nothing back from your boss and you think, oh, okay, that's that's fine. Tuesday comes, and you think, oh, maybe the attachment didn't work. So you send it again. Wednesday comes, still nothing. Thursday, you're a bit pissy by now because you put a lot of effort into it. And then Friday morning comes, you start work and your boss says, oh, thanks. Turns out I didn't need it. And what we learn in that moment is should a similar request to come out again in the future, it's much more likely that we're going to default to a conservative level of effort because we just don't know if it's going to go anywhere, uh, which makes sense because we all have a finite amount of time, energy and attention. It makes sense that we invest it into the things that provide the richest sense of progress. Um, I know, like, so I, I know many of us will write down lists of things to do and then tick things off just <laughs> that we've already done just to kind of get that mm. clear sense of progress. I do um, that all the time. I was doing yeah, that yeah. when you joined this podcast. Report. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, I yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I felt really good about it because I ticked a couple of things off. It's so good seeing the visible progress, right? Um, yeah. Some teams, I mean, this is interesting in the pandemic times because we don't necessarily gather in the physical spaces, but some, you know, agile teams would have a daily stand-up where they have a big Gantt chart that they gather around and they, you know, each share what, what did I achieve yesterday, what did I work on yesterday, what am I working on today? This like baking in the clear sense of progress is absolutely key. You talked about goals before. We've done a lot of work with our leaders around goals and the importance of goal setting. I think goals are going to be around for a long time, yeah? They're pretty institutionalised and they, they yes. do serve a purpose, particularly linking to any kind of financial metrics. But um, how do we balance that out with what you're talking about with motivation? So, so goals aren't bad um, and goals make sense. Uh, and I would suggest that, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's look at a few components here because goals help to focus our behavior and that's useful because otherwise everything's so complex and chaotic, what would, what would we do? My general heuristic is that goals work about 80% of the time, but we want to maintain some ability to be flexible, to have the ability to adapt to changing contexts, which I know most businesses would have done in the past year. You know, be it a pandemic or whatever it is, we need to have some capacity to flex. And it gets harder the more multinational you get. The larger your organization becomes, the harder it is to pivot. Um, so goals work. There's an important leadership quality, I would suggest, that can be inherent within any one of us to recognize when progress towards a particular goal is more of a delusion of progress than it is meaningful progress. And this is, this is what I mean by the double-edged sword or the progress principle. Uh, because our motivation, our focus, our attention and behavior will naturally gravitate to the things that provide the richest sense of progress, the things that we often end up doing are the things that provide the richest sense of progress. Now, the trouble is that the delusion of progress happens when the things that provide the richest sense of progress are the default things getting in the way of meaningful progress. So by default, I mean, you get a rich sense of progress checking emails. 
you know, in some organizations, it's much more of a career advancement strategy to broadcast that you're doing the work than it is to actually do the work itself. Mm. And that tends to result in emails with heaps of people CC'd in, emails about emails, meetings, meetings about meetings, a, a whole pantomime of busyness instead of getting on with the work that matters. Uh, the question then is, all right, well, what is meaningful progress? And I would suggest that meaningful progress is that which brings us closer to future relevance. But then we've got the question, what is future relevance? And that's something that, you know, requires curiosity, empathy and discernment to to get a sense of. And in the current context, particularly in large enterprises, most people are so freaking busy that, you know, 98 percent of their time is swept up in default work. Executives particularly are just so busy. The time to actually think and reflect is at such a premium and so limited that what happens is we end up perpetuating a heap of busy work, a heap of default behaviors that provide a rich delusion of progress. So it feels like we're busy. It feels like we're doing the things we're ticking boxes. The question is, is this meaningful progress? And that's that's the danger, dangerous allure of goals is that they can delude us into feeling great and we're hitting targets. But are they even the right targets? Is this helping to, you know, or are we, is this moving us closer to future relevance? Or are we investing a disproportionate amount of time in activities that uh, provide a low return on value? Because the trouble is a lot of organizations, they want, they want to innovate, right? They want to be innovative. They want to be agile. They want to be all these things, but that requires time to do well. And the only way that we can find time is by liberating it from the tasks that could be considered a delusion of progress. There's no way to magically create time. We could just need to find it, liberate it. Um, I remember Dan Arley, he's a author of Predictably Irrational. He's a professor at Duke University, a behavioral scientist. He was saying that he was having this conversation with this um, locksmith when the locksmith was an apprentice. And the locksmith was saying when he was the apprentice that he'd get called up to pick someone's lock because they'd lock themselves out of their apartment. It'd be a hot summer's day. They're standing out in the heat. He'd arrive. He'd get straight to work. And back then, it might take him 40 minutes to pick the lock, sometimes an hour. Sometimes he'd break the lock, and which would cost them more. But they would always be happy to pay him and he'd often get a tip. He'd often get a bonus bonus payment. But nowadays his fee for that job hasn't changed at all, but his skills have improved immensely. So he can rock up and within 10 minutes, people are back inside. You think they would be happy, but they're not. They're often pissed off. They're like, what, you're charging me this much? It only took you 10 minutes, are you kidding? And the thing is, we often value effort more than we value value. Mm. And what that can look like in an enterprise context is, is, again, that career advancement strategy of broadcasting that you're doing the work rather than actually doing the work itself. Now, this is this is something that we need to be hyper attuned to. Is this meaningful progress or am I perpetuating a rich delusion of progress? And that's a question I just keep coming back to with most of the work I do with executive teams. So, let, can we break it down to really practical? Yeah. What are some of the things I can do to create meaningful progress for my team in terms of achieving those goals in terms of the work that matters? Um, take out some of that distraction or those deflate ways of thinking. Because, you know, I was smiling when you were talking because um, I'm just thinking, oh, yes, before, you know, you joined the call, I was ticking off my to-do list and some of those things were actually a reminder to send some emails. Oh, we Yeah. And, you know, let's be kind to ourselves too. There's, there's, I mean, email is, it works on the variable reward ratio, the same thing that poker machines work on. It feels good to check our inbox. It feels good to clear it. Like it's just, 
and then there are whole tech companies that are designed their whole software stack based on dark patterns that loop into our our behavior um like the infinite scroll and all <laughs> so you know we're, we're up against a fair bit because our uh, i guess our biology our evolutionary biology hasn't quite caught up to the technological scale of the times that we find ourselves in it's incredibly hard to decouple particularly when you're in an organization potentially where that's just part of the culture um as a leader uh if i was i mean if i was listening to this i mean first of all there's no there's no magic easy solutions of course because otherwise most people would be already doing it but i would be i'd be reflecting on the activities and this is this is part of the key is like do we have actually do we actually have space for reflection do we have a space do we have any time for what I would call metacognitive awareness. And I know that some of the listeners are fans of Sam Harris. And so the mindfulness and all of that would be, would be apparent. And it's almost like that same mindfulness you might do to your own self. How could you take that helicopter perspective or the coach-like perspective to your role within the organization? And <laughs> sadly, in my experience, I think that most leaders really only get this chance at an offsite and most leadership teams aren't really having offsites anymore. Uh, I really think it needs to be a healthy part of everyone's week in an ideal world. And people will laugh at me like I'm a lunatic, but I would love to think that people have at least half a day a week where there are no meetings, there's no emails, there's no distractions. There's actually just time to think. Um, and that can be very hard as leader for you to find that time. And of course, where do you find that time? You, you try to liberate it from things that are otherwise a delusion of progress. So you get, you get savvier with meetings. You ask, you know, does this need to be done in this way? And anyway, and say, say you have some time, say you somehow manage to salvage some time for this reflection, for this awareness. Most of the time, of course, in a large organization, the larger you go, the more that goals and incentives uh, and targets all that pay pay a key role it makes sense and i would say at least 80 percent of our time we need to be focused on the operational excellence that makes a business work so the ceo i, I imagine ideally has has good good strategy informed that they're, they're looking at what's going on in the market there's conversations that are alive within the enterprise the strategy that's set but there's also some capacity to adapt it to enhance it to make sure we're on track for what could be considered meaningful progress. So from a leader's perspective, you've got some time to reflect. Somehow you've managed to work out your weekly calendar to allow yourself a half day for not simple navel glazing reflection, but perhaps for some of the conversations that you don't normally get time to have. And these are conversations that have a much more of a, a qualitative feel to it. So whereas we're so very good at goals and targets and all the stuff that can be measured, there's this um, you know, there's this quote that is a little bit uh, unfortunate in that, um, what is it? What gets measured is what gets done, which is probably the, um, I guess, partly the delusion of progress at times. It's that considered that only the things that matter uh, are things that are measured or something like that. You know, this time, if, if we're making meaningful progress, this is where you would actually look at like, okay, we've got these goals and targets. Do they still make sense? What's emerging in the market? What are other folks doing? What are things that we may not have considered? Where is this taking us? What, you know, what is in our quiver of options? What are some viable alternative options or different ways of doing things that we might be wanting to pay attention to? these are the these are the things that ensure that we're making meaningful progress and if you don't have time or capacity to think or explore or to flex curiosity and empathy 
and the risk is that you'll you'll work really hard, burning yourself out on the way on the pathway to irrelevance. You know, you'll you'll have you look back at the string of goals achieved from whilst you're you know on this sinking ship because um, <laughs> because somehow you've missed important things that are emerging in the world context. Um, and you wake up one day to find out that uh, your function, your role, your business, or whatever it is, is no longer relevant. And that's ultimately what we don't want. Somewhat to what you say, we reviewed our mid-year performance review process this year. Yeah? You know how in organisations you have a system to put all of your goals and in, yeah? And then at half mm. an year you go in and your employee puts the comments in and the leader puts comments in and you spend a lot of time in the system. <laughs> so we actually yeah. did do that the employee was encouraged to go in and just look think about their goals and what they'd achieved um they didn't have to do any input and the leader only had to put in whether they thought they were on track or off track towards their goal mm. now two things around why we did that is we wanted to one focus on the conversation between the leader and the employee about yeah. what was going well what wasn't going well what support they needed but also what we did for the first time we actually had the ability for the leader and the employee to review the goals and edit them and shift them yeah nice yeah how many times have you set goals in the system at the beginning of the year and then you get to the yep. end of the year and you go oh, i only achieved half of those but i did all this other work we're trying to get that kind of feeling in the organization around the fact that you have to continually be having these conversations and looking at what you're working on to make sure it's still relevant and i hope that ties in a little bit to people feeling motivated but also engaged in what we're doing and actually it was really more about quality conversations Totally. When you, I mean, a, a core motivation. I mean, if we think about the core drivers, it's it's meaning, it's contribution, it's mattering, it's community, it's it's playing a part of something bigger than yourself, and to have these conversations more regularly, to actually check in and to adapt and tweak the goals to make it more aligned to something more purposeful is hugely motivating. It's 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 huge. I love I love this approach. Yeah, I love it. I I. I I ran a session last night over I'm working with a client based in Switzerland and there was one of the senior leaders there that said that they had a whole bunch of scheduled conversations like performance conversations but they were doing it a new way and he was saying that he dreaded going into it obviously they've been so bad but because these were all qualitative well mostly you know actual conversations um making sense of it he said it was the best uh and I can imagine how you know, actually being engaged with performance, what it actually means, are we on track? Yeah, brilliant. I love yeah. it. Actually, what makes the difference is that conversation with the leader. Yeah. Quality conversations. I just I just feel like this is a, a pattern that for the past five years, it, it used to be that in organisations, uh, going out to have a beer at the end of the week or, you know, a cuppa or having cake and morning tea or, or whatever it is was just part of the culture. But then... I've just noticed most organizations have just found themselves incredibly busy. And so people would eat lunch at their desk, stay back late. And now with the pandemic, everyone's working at home and there's not really the time for the conversations that don't really fit in the typical meeting agenda or, or things like that. So any efforts to kind of create space for these types of conversations, I think are very, very worthwhile. When we first engage, you know, you introduce this concept of two by two, you know, work on two strategic items a day that I, I know are going to take a bit more time and space. For me, it's been a game changer, seriously.
it's almost like nowadays I'd probably be just like just just one before one would be great. <laughs> um, and that that it's actually that's it's funny. Um, I, I read an incredible book years ago called Deep Work uh, by Cal Newport, Focused Success in a Distracted World. Um, and Deep Work, uh, again, I feel like it's something that's very rare within organizations because they're, you know, most people get their best work away from the distractions of work. But this has now changed because work is all happening at home and how we kind of manage it now that we're always online and accessible is is, is part of the challenge. For me, it comes down to to trying to have a healthy relationship to rituals and rituals are I consider to be um, sacred routines where we deliberately, I, I guess, f flex against the against the grain of busyness to progress the things that matter. And uh, some of the best rituals I, I've seen, I mean, a lot of people have their own versions of this. It depends on your chronotype as well, whether you're a night owl or a, you know, more of a morning bird. Um, but I think it's quite powerful, and you've mentioned this, to have some time where maybe the internet's turned off, or at least the emails are turned off for a block of the time during the day. Uh, some sort of space, and all leaders can think of this, all, all folks can think of it. What is that sacred window that you have in your day? And it might be that circumstances mean it's only one half day a week, potentially, but it's something sacred. No, no meetings get booked there, you preserve it. It's in the calendar. Anyone who goes to look at your calendar, they can see this time blocked out there. And if you were to honor that for the deep work that's required there and and know the most important thing to be working on so you don't contaminate it with distracting work, that can be hugely powerful. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to write another book at the moment and I have been for some time and it is so easy to not write, so very easy to not write. Uh, it requires for me almost, and I, I say this like there's a sacredness to the ritual to the routine like when i'm when i'm in writing flow i wake up i see like the sun's rising i make a coffee in the morning a beautiful pour over coffee i kind of have this 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 process of starting with some morning pages journaling to just get to get centered to arrive at writing and there's this there's a quality to it it's not rushed it's not distracted it's i, I don't know it's the kind of thing that i wish for all all folks really to have some sense of their own patterns and rhythms and to work out, you know, we all know there's important work to do. We all know that we get terribly distracted. How can we shape the time around us to ensure that we're allowing time for meaningful progress um, and not getting swept up in the various distractions and delusions of progress of modern work? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about rituals. Do you also buy into the concept of flow? Oh yeah, I'm hugely. Uh, flow is is real. Um, uh, I, I love the book by Milatric Semi High Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. It's also very much linked to the context. And, you know, we're, we're looping back to sport again. The, yeah. A lot of sports people will find themselves in flow because they're operating at an inner domain where the challenge is perfectly calibrated to their skill level. So it's challenging enough to not be so challenging that we're, you know, super anxious and scared, but also not so under, you know, so the challenge is not so low that we're bored and disinterested and, and finding the, the, the space where you can get in that flow channel where you have challenging work, but you know, you, you got this and you can do this. That's kind of critical to the ritual. And the thing about flow is when you're in flow, the work becomes autotelic. It, you know, it, you become one with the task. It, it becomes 
you become absorbed, you lose sense of time. You know, when we're, when we're in flow, hours can go past and, you know, we, we blink and we realize, oh, it's dark. When did that happen? And, oh, I need to go to the bathroom and I haven't drunk water for three hours. Um, that's powerful. I mean, it can be dangerous. It can be addictive. This is why video games have uh, a problem at, at times because they get, they get people into flow states and it's joyous when you're in it, but it can be um, destructive. And that's why, again, I think that the power of ritual is really important because a ritual is contained. Um, so going back to Cal Newport with um, deep work, one of the most powerful things that he, Cal Newport writes about is the, the notion of a shutdown ritual, something that you do each day where you shut down work mode. And this is something I need to keep coming back to. And I think it's something that with particularly with this work from home um, uh, landscape that we're in now, we all need to have very good shutdown rituals where we, we just declare done with the day. And this is hard, you know, if, you're, if your workstation is set up in your home and you can see it, it would be so easy just to go back and do a few more emails or do a few other things. But the, the counterintuitive thing is the more deliberate we can be at shutting down and finishing work for the day, the more that we can give time for our mind to rest and recover, the better our performance will be, the better our outcomes will be in the work when we show up the next day. Which again, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a sports person, but in the last few years, I've, I've definitely um, have more interest in looking after health. Like any good exercise physiologist would be talking about the importance of rest and recovery, and and the same happens in work. You know, in, in the quality of our thinking, we just if if we're on all the time, we're we're just going to operate at this kind of low function burnout, and we're not going to experience blissful flow, and we're not going to experience the depth of creativity. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about something I really enjoyed learning with you and it's about having a, a word of the year. I, I, I remember you introducing this concept when I first met you and I thought, ah, oh, great, I can have, I'm going to be um, happy. And you said, no, you've got to think about something deeper than that, something non-cliché. Can we explore the concept of your word of the year? I have a program, uh, chooseoneword.com, which has over 70 video modules to help people to find their word. I, I did a presentation once and the CEO afterwards said, yep, I've got my word. My word is accelerate. We need to, we need to just move faster to hit our targets. And I could see people groaning and just, it's just because the issue was, it seems to be exactly the same thing um, as before. And the opportunity for us to really deeply reflect upon what our word might be for the year ahead, something that we cast forth as a fuzzy contextual beacon that might guide our way through all the complexities and perplexities of life. Some sort of like something like a North Star that can serve us for a year in the next unfailing chapter of our life. You know, to do that well, I think of it as a, an annual ritual of becoming, a chance where we think about the patterns of how we show up in the world, the patterns of, of I guess, you know, the, the, the various fulfillment factors that, that we have, the, the things that light us up and the things that maybe uh, make us feel a bit more drained or, or less vital as, as, as it were. And there's a deep process of doing this that involves, you know, deep introspection, reflection and projection. But at, at its simplest uh, distillation, I would suggest that the, the ritual of choosing one word for a year, and you can do this at any time. And so I think of, I, you know, if you think of your life as, as though it were an autobiography, as though every single moment leading to this moment right now has been written down in this big unfurling story of your life. 
And if you will look at the last few years, the last few chapters, it's likely that you, if you're reading through this story, you might notice common patterns or themes. In some areas you might think, oh, I can't believe it's 2021 and I still haven't blah, or I, oh, there you go, I'm doing that same thing again, that same pattern, or I'm in that loop again. This is the point where we find ourselves where we ask, okay, well, what do we want this next chapter to be like? And it's, it's of a level of complexity because who knows what's going to emerge in the next year. You know, for us, where we are right now, the pandemic might emerge again. We might have massive bushfires or torrential floods or, or who knows. So instead of having a specific goal where we have something that we're looking to achieve at a set time that's measurable and achievable and realistic and time-based, instead we, we embrace the fuzziness. And so rather than a goal, we try to manifest a word that aptly encapsulates all the qualities that we're striving for. And so um, I've had words like kingly, wizard, fool, pirate, gentleman, jester, um, and that, that they each kind of represent a certain disposition that I'm, I'm, I guess, looking to increasingly embrace. Like the year of the gentleman was after the year of pirates. So the year of pirate was me kind of going out and doing my own thing and being a little bit more, um, I guess, commercially savvy and a little bit more ruthless and rebellious and the year of the gentleman or the gentleman pirate, which was much more about, okay, time to start being a little bit more savvy with, you know, wealth and investment and just how I go about life. And that then spawns principles that you can adhere to. In my year of the gentleman, I had uh, quality in all things. So less about quantity and more about quality. You know, you then integrate into your character and ultimately all of this becomes character building. And so for anyone listening, the chances any, at any point in the year, you can start this ritual, a ritual of becoming, where you invest time reflecting, introspecting deeply upon who you are and who you might become. You start becoming aware of the patterns of how you've shown up in life and you start to anticipate, well, who might, who might I want to be in the coming times? And then you start thinking, okay, what does it look like in terms of keystone behaviors, in terms of principles to uphold, in terms of patterns and projects? And then after all of that work, if we can find a word or manifest a word that kind of aptly encapsulates that, that then serves us as a fuzzy contextual beacon for the year ahead. And then when our friends know our word as well, they can also hold you true to your word. And likewise, we can serve in for the same for our friends. How do you maintain your word of the year? Because how does it differ from having a resolution? Okay, so it helps when there's a, when you have a bit of a community around you. The active interest that you show in other people's words, so like those of your friends and family, those around you, um, I mean, it really is a glimpse into the complex, rich, unfurling world of their own development. Uh, you show interest in that, they, they show interest in your words, if it's distinct and memorable enough. So, you know, anyone could choose a word like uh, well-being, right? That's pretty forgettable. I had a friend who chose the word hunter uh, because she, she originally started with the word focus, but she thought that's just a little bit too clinical. And then she came up with hunter because hunters need to be able to focus on their, their prey, but they also need to be aware of their surroundings and adapt and stuff like that. It's just got, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, I have a friend this year who's going freelance for the first time and he's chosen the word mercenary. Um, and if you look at the linguistic roots of it, like mercenary is linked to mercantile. It's actually, it's quite a noble, um, 
uh, background to the word mercenary, even though it also carries with it a kind of ruthlessness. We want to have words that are distinct, that are memorable, and that are interesting for our friends. And that we also want, by the same token, we also want to be interested in our friends as well. And so then what happens is you have this kind of community vibe where you co-create and help each other stay true to their words for the year. And this is even more powerful if you've invested time genuinely considering what word would serve you most in the year ahead. If you've just plucked one from, you know, if you just spent all of a few minutes just thinking about your word, chances are you're just going to perpetuate the same patterns that are creating this dissatisfaction that you feel now. Um, like when I chose my word pirate, the reason, the real thing I needed to be there is I had this tendency of being, you know, this nice guy. This is this was years ago, but I had this tendency of being this nice guy, kind of letting other people, you know, just going, just kind of being a little bit too meek and a little bit too, you know, moving with things. And and I needed to kind of like take a stand um, for what I wanted. Or last year I chose the word bard, which is like a like a poet or a minstrel and. That was specifically because I was realizing that after my year of wizard and I was starting to get quite bleak and heavy about where the world was going. Um, and so the idea here with the word is it needs to be a little bit of a pattern disrupt or it needs to liberate you from an unproductive loop that you find yourself in. So when you're aware of that and we're aware of your friends, you help co-create it and you keep each other true. And then, of course, there's the rituals of quarterly reviews and uh, daily, you know, journaling or journaling where possible and the annual ritual, all of this comes together and it just helps in a kind of gentle meandering. It's like not a, not a rigid plan or a linear plan or anything like that, but it's it's a way, it's just a, this compass. You'll, you'll wander off track, everyone does, but then when you find yourself in a tricky situation, you'll have your word there to help call you back true to what your intention is for the year. That's great. I do like the concept of having an intention if we think of it more through the lens of a gardener rather than an architect, mm. so rather than try to try to kind of come up with the blueprint for the year and the exact plan, we're more looking at what do we want to grow and what does what would it require? What nutrients? What light? What you know sunlight and you know what how how might we nurture this in within ourselves? And if you know comparing it back to the New Year's resolution versus a word like vitality. And you think, okay, what does vitality look like? What does it mean? What is it? How might I be true to the the word of vitality? And that could be a whole myriad of ways. Like it might be going for runs, but then if you happen to hurt your ankle or something like that, there are other ways that you can enhance vitality in life. That, that even if you even if you might not be able to enter a running competition, that's okay. We just flex and like you know we fluidly adapt um, the meaning of it, and we still stay true to our intention. If there's one piece of advice you could give about one thing to focus on, what would it be? Well, okay, so there's like a there's a there's a question that I love people to contemplate, but it it, it trips your head up a little bit. And the question is, um, what are you pretending to not know? And when we think about what we're pretending to not know, we kind of then tap into the intuition around what is actually important or what we actually need to focus on. And that links to the question, is this meaningful progress? And I guess one of the suggestions I'd have is just to have that as, as a context to keep returning to, is this meaningful progress? Now, 
Unfortunately, this is the type of question that can haunt you. It's haunted me. I'm I'm in an ongoing, unfurling, I don't know, even know if it's fair to say midlife crisis. There's just some sort of existential uh, crisis is too dramatic a word, but there's this angst around my own work, um, how I show up in organizations, what type of system I'm contributing to. And even though it's uncomfortable, I'm kind of glad for it because it's in the it's in the contemplation of this that brings us closer to meaningful progress and so i guess i guess for any any leader or manager even if you're looking at your day and you're thinking oh i just it's the back-to-back meetings you'd, i'd ask yourself hey, you know is this meaningful progress what what areas there maybe maybe you don't have to be at every meeting there maybe maybe your team got this you know or maybe there's some other ways through this so meaningful progress is probably what i'd have as as, as almost a daily question that we ask ourselves there's a pattern that sometimes leaders will find themselves doing a lot of operational work again and getting into micromanagey domains. And that's largely a response to the anxiety of the unknown, because mm. one of the constant things that a leader needs to grapple with is an uncertain future. Yeah. And I think it's that shifting that focus around purposefully being a leader. Yeah. And so yes, really want to empower your team and support and coach and have those conversations. It's also it comes back to the, you know, these are the conversations that don't necessarily fit within the metrics and the schemas. And that's not to say metrics and goals and plans and all that aren't good. They are. We need it most of the time, 80% of the time. We just need to make sure, particularly as leaders, that we're creating the space to have the conversations that matter. What are you listening to in your kind of world of podcasts that you might want to recommend people explore a little bit? Okay, this might be a little bit esoteric for some people's tastes. Um, but I have a friend um, who uh, runs the Lightfoot podcast. So mm -hmm. L-I-G-H-T-F-O-O-T, um, Joe Lightfoot. Um, he's interviewing people that are doing incredible work at cultivating community. Um, and I just feel like that's a quality within organizations that we can do better at. It's more than just the work. Mm -hmm. So the, the Lightfoot podcast, um, I also, I personally really have come to like the Jim Rutch show, J-I-M-R-U-T-T. -T. He's a complexity scientist uh, and the guests that he has on is oh, just, they're of a, it just blows my mind and i just i just find it some of the most intellectually nutritious uh, listening that you can come across so they're the two um uh i also really enjoy the on being podcast with krista tippett um uh she interviews um uh, philosophers poets it's 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 beautiful when i want to flex into i guess uh more of the artistic side of things about to close out, but is there any other parting words of wisdom you would like to provide our listeners? I'll give you the two quotes that I just I just love and I just I think about this quite a lot. The first is a quote from James Cass. He's the author of Finite and Infinite Games, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. He says that only that which can change can continue. And I remind myself of this every time that I find myself in a bit of a rut or an unproductive pattern. Only that which can change can continue. And then I think, what, what is it that I might need to change about this or about the way I'm approaching this? The other quote is um, from a fictitious character called Andrew Ryan, is CEO of, or I guess the founder of Rapture, an underwater city in a game called Bioshock. He says, we all make choices, but in the end, our choices make us. Mm. And 
I just like to think like, what are we choosing to do? That are, what choices are we making today that are shaping who we are? You know, it's there's this there's this wonderful blog by um, Tim Urban uh, called WaitButWhy.com. Uh, Wait but why? And he has this post, um, your life in weeks, where it's you can step back and visualize your life as though every like little um, cube on a grid is is one week, and you can see your whole life before you, and you can kind of mark out where you are based on the average life expectancy. And I just I find that so compelling to realize, oh, we're living this finite life, and all the choices we make are shaping who we are. thinking you know as a motivational scientist if you're struggling for a bit of motivation is there a one rocking theme that gets you up and going or is that uh-huh. a very flippant question i mean most of the music that i love is um instrumental um uh, but there's this one i remember i was doing um this keynote in canada to an audience of five thousand people uh and it was at the time the biggest audience that i'd spoken to and, and i was in the hotel room and i just I listened to a, a track called uh, The Finishing by Stav, uh, Stavros. Mm-hmm. So that's S-T-A-V-R-O-Z, uh, The Finishing. And it's this amazing saxophone. It's got this build to it. Oh, it just it just works for me every time. It's like this musical trigger for this flow state that always has me feeling like, oh, yeah, I've got this. You know, oh, I love it. I'm feeling good about it just, just thinking about it now. So thank oh, you for good. the question. Dr. Jason Fox, so lovely to speak to you um, on the Accolade Wine podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Um, It's just been great to uh, reconnect and also um, talk about these concepts. So I know our people are going to find it really interesting. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Well, that brings a close to my conversation with Dr. Jason Fox. There were some really great messages in that conversation and for me, the things I'm going to think about are the importance of building time in my day or week to have the quality conversations that really matter. Why I might explore the concept of having a word of the year. Making sure I have a shutdown ritual at the end of the day so I can refresh and recharge my brain to continue to perform at my best. And what choices am I making today that will shape who I am tomorrow? Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found it interesting and it sparked your curiosity to find out more. We have plenty of materials and resources to support this episode, so remember to check the show notes. For more leadership content, subscribe to the podcast and follow Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. Your Potential.